This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to another Money and Markets podcast. Once again, inflation's blazing a trail through markets. I'm joined this week by Danny Hewson, and it's fair to say it's not just the weather that's got you. No, Dan, as well as record temperatures for the UK, UK inflation's also hit another 40-year high, coming in above expectation at a whopping 9.4% over the 12 months. And this number just a week after the US delivered its own price shock. Now, you won't be surprised that rising costs are a huge issue for companies. And a new report shows there's a 66% increase in profit warnings from UK listed companies in the first half of the year. Yeah, inflation is colouring absolutely everything from another dip in subscriber numbers for Netflix to pay negotiations, which are providing the backdrop to what is shaping up to be a summer of discontent. Now, Laura Suit is also going to be on the show talking to Roger Clark from property stock exchange IPSX, as some investors consider commercial property as a potential inflation hedge. Now, we've also got the latest update on UK inflation figures out just as we're recording this. So, Danny, what's the latest news? Yeah, as I've just said, 9.4%, uh, another 40-year uh, high. And I, I don't think this is going to come as much of a shock to anyone, although it was slightly uh, above expectation, which was 9.3%. And of course, is on a journey towards, well, 11% we're potentially expecting come October when that new energy price cap comes in. But the big pressures over the last month have been predominantly from the price of petrol, fuel at the pump, and also the price of food. And there was a number that caught my eye, Dan, which was the amount that petrol has gone up, average petrol prices over the last 12 months, 42.3%. That's quite a number, isn't it? Yeah, that is. I mean, but are they, they're coming down, though, aren't they now? I'm sure I saw something the other day to say that you're finally seeing them sort of get it. You know, we've perhaps seen the peak in in what you have to pay at the forecourt. Yeah, it is coming down, although that followed off the back of the price of a barrel of Brent crude falling as well. But that's gone back up, you know, over $100 a barrel just in the last week or so. And of course, the big issue is with refinery capacity. You know, we, we have an issue where we don't have enough refinery capacity to be able to, you know, really deal with everything that the world needs as economies wake up. And, and certainly here in the UK, the competition Competitions and Markets Authority is taking a good look at what's called refinery spread, which is the difference in price between, you know, it going in at crude and, and coming out the other end. And of course, you know, the, the retailer always gets it in the neck, but there's been quite a jump between, you know, that refinery spread last year and the refinery spread this year. But of course, all of this talk about this inflation number is just playing into speculation about what the Bank of England might do. We had comments from Andrew Bailey, the governor, um, speaking at the Mansion House, uh, saying that, you know, effectively, or hinting with a very large hint, that by the end of the year, we could be heading towards 2%. I don't think that will shock markets. And in fact, you know, markets now pretty much pricing in that a uh, half a percentage point hike could well be on the cards in August. 
Obviously, with the UK figures just come out, but we, we, we've also had recently some updated from the US. Inflation is still a big issue there. So of course, that's prompting lots of speculation and market volatility. Sort of investors trying to suss out how hawkish the Federal Reserve might be with its next interest rate hike. Yeah, so when we had um, the number come out uh, last week, 9.1%, um, markets unsurprisingly went into something of a meltdown. And that is because there's been a huge amount of talk that the Fed would have to act even more hawkishly than they had intended to. So there was a lot of talk about the potential that there could be a full 1% hike at the next meeting. Now, that sort of debate has softened. We've had things, a lot of rhetoric coming out, a lot of um, details about, you know, employment and, and the commodity prices. Commodity prices look like they are falling and easing somewhat and now I think investors are, are pretty much um, predicting that there will be another 0.75 percentage point hike. But that's that's what's been priced in. So we have seen things improve in terms of market sentiment over the last couple of days as we've had earnings seasons really coming out in full swing. But, you know, there, there is still so much economic data out there for uh, central bankers to wade through and investors are really nervous. And it does, as I say, come smack in the middle of earnings season and there's been plenty to worry investors, Dan. Absolutely. I say this consultancy EY has just issued a report which kind of sums up the problems that's, that we're sort of seeing at the moment. So, there's been the, the number of UK listed companies has jumped by two thirds year on year issuing profit warnings. So, and over half of them are blaming higher costs. So, it found 136 companies warned on earnings, and you know a good chunk of them are coming from consumer facing sectors. So, just in the last few days, we've had warnings from the sofa company Made.com. Um, you know that's had a sort of pretty terrible time over the last year. First, it had really big delays to. Um, getting its products to customers due to supply chain problems. And then, you know, demand is sort of dipping. I, I just think if you're looking to save a bit of money, um, times are hard. You know, ordering a sofa has got to be at the bottom of your list, isn't it? So this this, mm. sort of big, yeah, this big ticket item. So, um, you know, they're, they're now having, you know, real problems. Direct Line's another one which has come out and said that, you know, the costs of, Fixing cars that have been an accident, you know, is going up. So it claims inflation is a real problem now. But of course, insurance companies were stopped a while ago from um, being able to charge renewals, you know, considerably more than sort of new customers. So what you're seeing is that the motor insurance sector is having you know a pretty terrible time. So Direct Lines come out and said, well, okay, we'll pull our share buybacks. We'll remain committed to dividends now, but I think you're seeing the analysts speculating that actually, if the problems continue for a while, we could see big dividend cuts at direct line, and, that, and that's a that's going to be a real setback to lots of people who own that stock for popular income. And then some of the other names that have been warning include Deliveroo, people cutting back on takeaways. Weatherspoon says people are buying fewer pints of lager and cider in its pubs, and Ocado is saying that customers are ordering fewer items per order. 
And when you were talking about direct line, of course, you know, just for consumers as well, it, it looks now like there is, a, a, it's nailed on that premiums will go up. So when you're renewing your insurance, chances are you're going to have to pay a bit more. And there was a, a number that direct line quoted, which just astonished me. Uh, and they were talking about how much used car prices had gone up and they've got it from Auto Trader, And it was over £3,000 in a year. Just incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you've seen car companies, car retailers have been talking about this for a while. Um, you know, I guess at some point they'll they'll ease back. But yeah, I mean, if you if you need to buy a new car, you can't afford a new one. It's it's pretty tough going at the moment. Unfortunately, I need a new car or a new to me car, and I'm putting it off as long as I can. But getting to that point now, where I'm going to have to go and brave the car showrooms and try and do some negotiating. Got any tips? Mm, no <laughs> the right bike so. prices a massive factor aren't they yeah i mean we, we, the issue here is obviously that the input costs for companies is going up so they have to try and pass that on to the customer or they stomach it and they have smaller profit margins well the, the idea of pricing power where companies are able to pass on extra costs without affecting demand kind of showing which are the strong and which are the weak companies and uh, you know, you've got you've got people like Pepsi were saying, yes, we're able to sort of pass on higher prices. Earlier this year, Unilever said, actually, we're finding it a bit harder to pass on higher prices. And you know, we had a warning from Fevertree a few days ago. They're saying that their margins are being squeezed, which would imply that they are they don't have pricing power. And you know, to me, that's quite surprising. Um, if you think about how much, if you want a gin and tonic, you spend a load of money on the gin. Well, you know, if you're being asked to pay a little bit more for that mixer as well. In the bigger scheme of things, it shouldn't be too much of an ask, but perhaps the fever tree hasn't got that brand strength there. Especially when your mixer is maybe, you know, two thirds of your drink. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a tough one. And, it, you know, it, I think a lot of companies that people thought had this pricing power just don't have it. And um, But equally, it's just not not just about pricing, it's about currencies as well. We've just had some businesses like IBM and Johnson Johnson saying profits are going to be hit because of the strength of the dollar. Um, you know, Johnson Johnson earns nearly half of its sales outside the US. Um, you know, a strong dollar hits revenues for US companies with large overseas operations because it reduces the value of these overseas earnings and makes their products less competitive with local rivals. So, um, you know, unfortunately, we're going through this sort of phase of companies reporting now. And, you know, there's just a great long list of things that they've got to sort of tick off. And investors are fearing if it's not profit margins, it's something else. Um, not not a great time to be um, an investor. But equally, you know, if, you, if you're patient, you sit tight, hopefully this won't last too long. That's the key, isn't it? I mean, don't keep checking your investments because if you're looking at them day to day, you might be a bit worried. Um, amidst all of this volatility, though, there is quite a bit of insight into the current state of play from some fund managers. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you know, <laughs> they've reached a dire level of pessimism, according to Bank of America. So uh, the Bank of America talks to fund managers around the world and every month it issues a report sort of giving us sort of a, a, a taste of how people are thinking. So at the moment, these big investors have cut their allocations to shares to the lowest level since the collapse of Lehman Brothers at the height of the global financial crisis. So, um, of course, what's, what the issue here is rising recession fears, 
sparking worries about corporate profits. So, um, so cash holdings are, are going up. Um, lots of lots of fund managers are worried about recession, um, and they're sort of saying to companies in which they're invested, please pay off your debts. Don't go spending loads of money on new machinery and stuff, and just hold off those share buybacks as well. So, um, you know, if, and if you look around the world these investors are sort of increasingly putting their money into defensive areas like uh, utilities and healthcare. Um, they're cutting their exposure to commodities, which is interesting. Um, I think if we're seeing a, a reduction in commodity prices, that kind of makes sense. Um, and generally they're just, they're very, very pessimistic. So um, I think what we're going to see here is, is a difficult few months, some horrible news coming out, try not to get um, too worried about everything um hopefully this is just we're near the peak of inflation hopefully um and then maybe by early next year the, the sort of the outlook a little should be a little bit brighter i hope yeah so as i said before don't keep looking at your stocks um i, I want to bring it back now to the uk for a moment and glaxo smith has spun off its consumer arm in europe's biggest listing in a decade this made a big splash on monday morning called Halion, the Sensodyne, Panadol and Centrum maker joined the London Stock Exchange with a market cap of around 31 billion on listing. It makes it the world's largest company focused solely on consumer health. Now, it's raised a few eyebrows, that 31 billion market cap, because I don't know if you remember, but it wasn't that long ago that Unilever tried to buy GSK's consumer arm just at the start of the year. And that was at 50 billion, but the proposal was rejected. It was also widely unpopular with Unilever investors. But at the time, executives argued that the lower valuation expected in a listing didn't include very significant synergies or a premium that would be required to acquire the business. So in effect, basically, you want to buy, you've got to pay a bit more. We're not quite as concerned if it goes in on less on the stock exchange. You won't be surprised that shares have been up and down. We've had um, uh, GSK and Halion really enjoying volatility. Today, both shares are up, but it's fascinating that this has happened and that they were happier to go with a listing than to accept a higher bid, Dan. Yeah, I, I wonder if they were sort of caught unexpected by Unilever's takeover bid earlier this year. Of course, that $50 billion that Unilever offered, as far as I understand, was, was for a business that didn't have any debt in it. Well, now that GSK has spun it off, Halion does have about 10 billion debt. So if you add that to the 31 billion market value of its shares, it's still a lot less than obviously what Unilever was offering. And I think that you have some shareholders will be asking the question, well, why didn't you just you know, accept this offer? Why, why go through the hassle of this demerger? But but as it stands, so the shares floated first day at 330p. They've fallen a little bit. Um, but I, I think that I think that's to be expected. If you suddenly saying to someone that owns shares in GSK, you're going to get free shares in something else called Halion. Well, naturally, people think, okay, it's free. I'll just sell it now and you know take my cash. So when you do see demergers, it's, it's entirely normal for the first few days to see the share price go up and down. Some actually, some analysts are arguing that you you might need to wait a year for 
um, the share price to sort of properly settle down and, and people to sort of make up their mind if they want to be sort of longer term investors in this. But, um, you know, to me, it's like this business that sells um, headache tablets, toothpaste. Well, if we're in a recession, you want to cut back in your spending, you go to a supermarket and you know, places like Tesco and Sainsbury's, they all offer their own brand, much cheaper products. You don't need to spend four quid on a packet of headache pills. You can get, you know, paracetamol for 30p off the shelf, can't you? So I just wonder whether the growth expectations of Halion um, might need to be pared back in the short term. Um, and of course, you know, this is a big, big old company. Uh, and of course, when you're looking at growth situations with big companies, they can be very hard to achieve. So uh, I think that it's some investors might be pleased if they've had GSK all along. Um, that there's now a tighter focus just on GSK for, for pharmaceuticals uh, and not sort of commoditized consumer products. But, um, you know, I, I guess it's up to investors to decide what they want to do. But, you know, the, the fact is the share price is kind of all over the place at the moment doesn't surprise me at all. No, I mean, it, the argument, of course, is that if you have a smaller company which is much more focused when you are entering a period of recession and then coming out the other side... If you are smaller, you are much more adept at being able to sort of twist and turn in whatever direction you need to do in order to take advantage of opportunities. And there's an awful lot of speculation that there's going to be a lot more of this on the cards. Yeah, we see it quite a bit. You know, activist investors are looking around for big companies, um, thinking, actually, is, is there any sort of hidden value? In these demergers, we tend to get I don't know two, three, four a year of some big, the big names. Um, the the obvious one that could be next is Unilever. Um, Company is kind of stuck in its way at the moment, so there is already activist investors on the shareholder register pushing for some change. Um, equally, you might see you know other sort of conglomerate style businesses where a kind of you've got the, different parts that don't naturally fit together. The one that people have talked about for a long time is Associated British Foods. So it owns lots of sort of food ingredient stuff and Primark, the retail My business. daughter's favourite store. <laughs> so Primark doesn't fit at all with those other businesses, but equally the, what Associated British Foods always says is, well, when one bit's not doing very well, hopefully something else in our portfolio is and they kind of balance each other out. So there are merits to keeping things together, but um, ultimately, if a share price stays weak for a long time, of course, Associated British Foods is trading at a five-year low, then you know, all it takes is for someone with a bit of muscle to come along and say, I'll buy a big chunk of this business now and see if I can um, push through some change. But you know, I don't expect it with ABF for a while, um, but equally, people talk about Primark being separated um, on a regular basis, and this has been going on for years. Now, let's talk about some bad news, which has kind of been taken as good news um, overnight. And that is the announcement by Netflix that they lost almost a million subscribers between April and July. Of course, as people quit the service, you know, maybe they were concerned about the cost of living. Maybe they were having to make decisions about whether or not, you know, they would keep Disney or Netflix or whether they might go on to one of the new ones like Paramount Plus. And Netflix, of course, lost subscribers for the first time at last quarter. And it caused, you know, a, a massive shock 
for investors. And it also warned that it had expected to lose another 2 million this quarter. So I think investors were pleasantly surprised that that wasn't the case. They are, though, expecting to see a continued slowdown. So they're only expecting to put on an additional 1 million subscribers over the next quarter. That is despite the fact that they have spent an absolute shed load of money on new content. And that's one of the things which seems to have prevented the bigger loss of numbers that had been predicted. So, you know, particularly I'm thinking of Stranger Things. Do you watch Stranger Things? Uh, I watched a bit of it and I got bored. So, yeah, not for me, I don't think. (laughs) I've watched some of it and I got bored as well. But Squid Games, my kids absolutely love Squid Games. And uh, I must admit, it's one of the subscription services that I did look at cancelling. And my eldest daughter just said, no, please, anything else. So we've kept it. But a lot of people haven't kept it. And That is one of the reasons that Netflix announced a couple of weeks ago that it was going to pair up with Microsoft and it was going to offer a cheaper subscription service, but one that came with advertising. Now, you know, discussions about whether or not Netflix should bring ads onto the platform have been going on for over a decade. It's all about, you know, making money. And it's fascinating that they've decided to do this now because, of course, one thing that happens um, when you have economies cooling and, you know, a lot of people are expecting that we have recession very much on the cards. And a lot of that, what tends to happen then is that companies cut back on their marketing and advertising spend. So there's a lot of questions about whether or not this is the right time for a start. But then you've also got questions about exactly how much Netflix would charge, how much they would need to, you know, sort of to break even here. And it's clear that people are concerned about price, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm the same as you. You question, do I need to keep paying subscriptions for multiple services? And so... Um, you know, if there was an option to have something where at probably you know half price, I would say would be quite a reasonable thing. You know, I, I'd stomach some adverts, but I, I think that Netflix is um, it's going through a bit of a change period. It's having to rethink its future. Um, I think it could do a lot more uh, if it th- just thought about things properly. I tend to get the impression that it, it just releases a you know, something new and doesn't bother to sort of promote it much either. It's um, I, I just think it's got carried away with its growth story, and then of course now that's come to a crashing halt. It needs to have a good long hard think about how to run the business properly, and hopefully that should be for for, for the benefit in the longer term. But um, you know we've seen this issue with um, cancelling subscriptions is sort of laid out by a new survey by Cantar. Um, it found that 1.6 million services were cancelled in the second quarter of 2022 in Britain. Now, it was under 24s were most likely to cancel, um, according to the data. And of course, more than a third of them were attributed to cutting costs. Um, so we, we in the office at the moment, um, I've got a young lady called Erin who's doing some work experience. And we brought Erin onto the podcast to... Um, to give us sort of a younger person's perspective on on perhaps you know streaming and Netflix. So, Erin, um, welcome to the show. Hello, hiya. Um, so, uh, I guess so you've just done your GCSEs. You're, you're yeah, you know, yeah. what do you do? You actually watch 
live TV, you sit down and watch you know, BBC One or something, or is everything that you do is about streaming platforms like Netflix or, or sort of websites like TikTok? Or, no, I'd or... definitely say about 90% of it is all on streaming platforms. And if I was ever to watch live TV, it would be with your family in the living room, you all watch it together. And it's more of um, like a social thing. But yeah, I mean, the idea that perhaps I know you you won't be responsible for paying the bill for <laughs> for Netflix now, but imagine if you were slightly older and you had the responsibility to sort of pay the bill, would you choose a, a, a sort of a cheaper Netflix if it came with adverts, or would you actually sort of be prepared to pay a little bit more, um, just have a normal service so you can get away with not having those ads? And... See, I think uh, Netflix not having any adverts is actually what makes it stand out in comparison to live TV and everything, because you're not having to sit through those adverts. You can watch it faster and you end up watching it for longer as well because you're not being distracted by all the adverts. You are solely focused on what you're watching, really. Yeah, so it's it's a a good point. I mean, do you you think Netflix has got too much content? I mean, there's there's so much to choose from, isn't there? And some of it's not... Mm. In my perspective, I don't think it's very good quality, but I mean, do you find that you've got, there's always something good for you to watch down there? I definitely think they have the widest genre of TV shows and movies. They are trying to please everyone, but that does come at a cost because the quality goes down or they don't keep them on the platform for very long. They take them on and off. Um, and they're just trying to keep up with the trends, but I don't think they can do it. Erin, do you watch YouTube stuff as well, or do you watch everything which has been created purely for entertainment purposes in a professional way? Yeah, I do watch YouTube, but I've started watching it a lot less because of the adverts. They are just so regular, and you can't skip them anymore. And so you just lose your attention span, I suppose being bombarded by adverts all the time uh, that's a warning for netflix then yeah i mean i think it's you know, something like tiktok is um perhaps underappreciated by lots of people as well in terms of sort of um grabbing people's eyeballs because I, I think everyone sort of suggests you either watch live tv or you watch netflix but actually it is tiktok isn't it that it's really it's sort of, particularly mm. with the sort of the, yeah. the younger um you know people your age particularly you're, you're you're obsessed with it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. But even TikTok, it just incorporates adverts a lot more cleverly because they're only short little clips. So mm. You can't tell if it's an advert or a video. It's it's clever. Yeah. What do you think, Danny? What what's what? You know, are you going to sort of take a good good look at this situation now and think? Um, you know, if I'm presented with Netflix as a with an ad option, would you consider that, or you know, you're happy to pay that premium to get rid of those promotions? I would always pay a premium to get rid of the adverts because it is just as Erin said. You know, it disrupts what you're watching, and I think if you have to pay for something in the first place, then you don't expect to have to pay for adverts. That's what terrestrial TV has always been about. Do you pay for something which came with adverts? Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess it's. I mean, ITV has this choice, don't they? This is the ITV X is going to be launched later this year, where you got the option to pay for adverts or not. And um, I guess you know, if you watch something like Now TV, the Sky streaming platform, that's got adverts, and I don't find it to be too 
too much of a hassle, to be honest. You just get used to them after a while, I think. Well, what um, people cut back on directly relates to how their budgets are holding up, how far their wages are stretching. And we got some new numbers earlier this week about jobs figures, which again show that employment is up, the number of people on payrolls are up. But the big number which caught everyone's attention was pay. It's falling at the fastest rate since 2001, down 2.8% when adjusted for inflation. So, of course, we are smack bang in the middle of a whole load of pay negotiations. And the inflation number which has come out today, of course, is just playing into that. And The situation is that people are saying that they need a pay increase, which covers the cost of living, because if they're not getting sort of 9.4%, and honestly, that's going to be obsolete towards the back end of the year, although after that price hike from the um, energy bills, we are hoping that things will start to cool. But the argument is that if you're not getting an inflation busting pay rise, then you're actually just getting a pay cut. So that is why we are having all of these negotiations really take on quite a difficult tenor and lots of unions balloting for strike action. We know that there are already strikes on the railways, BT, um, their workers are set to strike, Royal Mail, their workers are set to strike. And there are certainly an awful lot of um, discussions going on following the announcement of the pay deals for different public sector workers. Lots of talk at the moment about a summer of discontent, but there's a lot of private companies who are choosing to go a bit of a different way. So we've had a number of companies offering a lower percentage pay rise, but coming with a cost of living bonus payment. So that means that sort of long term wages haven't gone up by quite as much, but that people feel that they have that little cushion to get them through the next few months. And I think the next few months, Dan, is going to be really tricky. Yeah. And I guess the the thing to think about there is if you're suddenly given, say, like a thousand or two thousand pounds, what's the likelihood of people actually just putting that to one side to use that for their bills? I mean, there's a chance there they'll just blow it all, won't they, <laughs> down the shops. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, you can see why they're doing that. It's You don't want to sort of keep pushing up that sort of base salary because all future negotiations will be based off a higher high level if, you, if you're, you're putting those that money there. But obviously, if it's a one-off bonus, then you can just forget about that um next year if things sort of start to calm down again. But, but then, of course, know, the argument is that even if inflation cools, prices we're not expecting to see deflation no absolutely you know i don't think that companies will be rushing to sort of to cut their costs any you know, cost, cut their prices anytime soon so um yeah i mean the strike thing is sort of, i think it's just going to build and build and build um i certainly think that you know people who work for privately owned companies are yeah you know, i say a year ago there was there would be in a much stronger position to sort of talk about um decent pay rises there was so much um, demand from employers to find new people and they were struggling to find suitable candidates. Well, now those sort of hiring sort of sprees seem to be putting on ice. So um, I'm not so sure that sort of workers are going to get sort of hyper generous um, pay rises across the board. And I think, you know, perhaps people need to think that just because inflation is running, you know, close to 10%, 
but that doesn't mean to say you're going to get a 10% pay rise. Yeah, it's interesting because we're seeing a, a bit of a diversity as well. So in some cases, we're seeing lower paid workers get an additional pay hike, which I think you can really understand. But in other cases, we're only seeing certain skill sets get a really high pay hike. And again, you can understand it from an employer's perspective, because some of those skills are really sought after at the moment and difficult to find. And if if as an employer, you're struggling to recruit the people that you need to run the business, then again, any warnings from the likes of the Bank of England or uh, the government not to create this sort of wage spiral, it's going to be very hard indeed for you to, uh, you know, keep an eye on that. Absolutely. So let's move on to our next topic. So commercial property, that's meant to be one of the ultimate inflation protected investments. So I would have thought lots of investors might be thinking about the opportunities in that market at the moment. So Laura Suter caught up with Roger Clark from Property Stock Exchange, IPSX, to see how the markets rebounded post-pandemic and whether that inflation protection is going to hold true in the coming year. Uh, So we wanted to talk all things commercial real estate today. And I think it might be useful to start kind of looking back a bit. Um, And obviously, the industry was hit a lot during COVID and during the pandemic. During that time, we saw a lot of businesses fail and not pay rent, or there were lots of rent holidays. And I'm just interested in how the industry has now recovered from that kind of COVID lockdown pandemic period. And, And also, has the landscape changed within commercial real estate? Well, I think the it's, yeah, I think the uh, occupational side of the commercial real estate markets has actually proven to be quite quite resilient. I, you know, we see, for example, L- London office um, vacancy rates are back uh, back to a point where they're lower than they were pre-pandemic. Which I know it feels quite counterintuitive because we all sort of feel as if lots of people are working from home, but of course. I think most people go to the office a little bit, um, and so yeah, the pe- people still have offices, uh, and people are are, are paying rent again. Um, so I think the the sector has bounced back on that front um, uh, in a really robust way. And have we seen any changes? I guess in terms of um, I don't know things like city centres being less appealing, or, or are we now really back to kind of business as usual from pre-pandemic? Probably not completely business as usual pre-pandemic. I think the hybrid model does feel as if it's here, here to stay. Uh, I know a lot of companies are uh, giving um, their, their employees me- membership of uh, sort of shared and serviced office uh, groups so that they're able to maybe go into an office which is nearer to home. Uh, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the sort of uh, regional cities, and I think that comes law of largely from probably the thing that people dislike most about coming into the office is actually getting the train into town. Usually, mm-hmm. so uh, being able to to go to an office which is local is still quite attractive. Um, I certainly notice it here. My office is in the city in London, and um, it's very different on a Monday and a Friday to to mm. how it is on Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I think people still like coming to work, but I think it's a hybrid model that feels like the normal now. And so then we go from that to the current challenge facing um, lots of individuals and businesses, which is the cost of living crisis. So has that had an impact yet, or is it predicted to have an impact on um, commercial real estate as a whole? I think it, it does indirectly, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
in the sense that uh, you know inflationary pressures uh, are feeding through to to um, borrowing costs rising, and that probably more than anything else um, do, always affects real estate. Um, interestingly, compared to previous sort of cycles we've we've been through. Uh, the, the the listed real estate sector is actually much much less leveraged today than it was 15 years ago. For example, going going into the uh, post Lehman crunch, the uh, UK REIT sector was on average levered 55% LTV. Today, that's 27%. So, although borrowing costs are going up, it's not sort of uh, presaging some kind of debt crunch like we've seen before. But it does certainly impact sentiment and valuations especially in listed real estate where you know sentiment swings are are exacerbated but in, in listed share prices and so we we tend to think of um of real estate as being an attractive asset class in inflationary times i mean history i think has, has shown us that but why is that the case could you just explain a bit about um why that's an asset class that tends to do well in high inflation periods well traditionally um Commercial real estate leases have been long, uh, and and the classic sort of UK model was to have uh, five year upward only rent reviews, which which would mean that the you know the income is locked in, it doesn't ever go down. As long as your tenants keep paying rent, uh, you should have uh, in, inflation proofing in there. Um, and as the rents go up, of course the the value of the buildings over time goes up. Now, of course, that model has changed in the last 10 years or so in the UK quite a bit. You don't often see 25-year leases with office tenants now. You see shorter leases. Um, and uh, and so it um, the the inflation-proofing characteristics of real estate, and I think in general this, this, this is true in every sense about real estate, that the it, it, it's it's very important to look at the specific company or the specific sector or the specific type of real estate. Uh, you know, it's not a homogenous sector anymore, but certainly some parts of the real estate markets will be very, uh, very robust defensive plays against the inflation that we've, we've got coming down the track now. And what about if we've obviously got a lot of recession fears at the moment? So what about in a kind of... Um high inflation but also recessionary environment what does the past tell us about how real estate reacts then well again the past is is i I, I always hesitate to say this time it's different but what is very different this time is that the uh the levels of debt around are much less than we've seen before so in the past where, where these sort of um impacts came was through values of real estate falling when you're highly levered, you can move into negative equity, and that's uh, a little bit d- disastrous. We won't see that this time in the listed space. Um, so I, I think that um, the past isn't a complete guide to what we're going to see in, in the future. But I do think that if we go into a recession, there are it's possible now with lots of specialist REITs, the more modern REITs, which focus on particular sectors, to find listed companies that, that that are operating in areas of life that um, probably can withstand cost of living crisis and uh, recessions. Things like specialist medical 
property REITs, things like um, specialist student property REITs. These these will all, I mean, one of the things we do always see during recessions is that um, uh, uh, more people go to university and perhaps stay at university for longer. Um, obviously, uh, the medical need is recession proof. And so I think it's possible to, to, to pick quite specific strategies to focus on. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, and you're right, we tend to think of, of commercial real estate as being this kind of one homogenous group. But actually, when you drill down into it, there's so many more niche areas. Um, even kind of you break up the retail space from high street shops to out of town parks or um, logistics centres, things like that. So um, what you touched on it a bit there, but what are we seeing more about the outlook for some of those more specific areas? Where's um, You've identified a few that are looking better, but where's looking less rosy if we were in a kind of inflationary and potentially recessionary time? Well, I think uh, you, you'd, you'd have to perhaps worry about some of the larger shopping centres because that, that discretionary non-food spending is already beginning to, um, to, to be cut back. And if we really go into a a prolonged period of inflation and recession that 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 can only continue you'd expect so i think that's probably one of the places i i would be most worried although conversely that that sector has performed really quite well so far this year admittedly from a low base coming out of covid um and with commercial real estate, we, we mainly see DIY investors accessing it through REITs. Um, we obviously saw a lot of the issues that were in the open-ended property sector. Um, but you also think that there's some drawbacks to investing um, through those REITs? Yeah, there are. I mean, I think one of the things, you know, during my period of working in the city, the, the listed real estate sector as a proportion of the overall stock market has dropped from around 9% to today, um, around about 2%. It's a really small part of the equity market. And yet, these companies, particularly the larger ones, which are more liquid, in fact, um, they, they, they're inevitably pulled around and their prices, share prices are, if you like, contaminated by broader stock market trends. You know, they, if you have shares in a, one of the biggest diversified REITs. Um, the share price might move this afternoon based on whatever Elon Musk says in his latest tweet, as much as what the rental performance of the underlying property is. And that's dangerous because you know that's literally not what you want exposure to real estate for. You want exposure to real estate to diversify away from uh, equity markets, um, and and so that's that's the danger with some of some of the the, the REITs, particularly the generalist REITs. Um, and so, what's the what's the solution that you guys have to that issue? Well, we think that the the the, the REITs that, that have performed better um, and tend to trade better are the ones that have um, an ability to trade away from NAV and an ability to to show investors that they have secure, solid, long-term income streams. Um, and those have tended on the, uh, the, the broader stock markets in the, in the REIT sector. Those have tended to be the kind of alternative focused strategies like we were mentioning earlier, medical, self-storage, student accommodation. But actually, it follows that if you can predict and have transparency around the future income streams and the asset management plans that, that, that the owner has for, for a specific property, that should 
translate to to any sector. Yeah, some offices will perform very well over the next twelve months, and some won't. Uh, those that are, you know, very with the very highest ESG credentials, let to multinationals, uh, will perform better perhaps than uh, aging assets in provincial towns that are struggling to to attract investors. But if you invest in an office reach, you're going to get a bit of both. You're going to have no control over which of those specific types of, uh, of office building you're exposed to. So, you know, I, I think what the market needs is to is to give investors more choice and more control over exactly what what assets they want to buy and sell and allow them, hopefully in a liquid scenario to be able to to move between them just just like you can move between whichever banking stock you might own or whichever mobile phone operator you might own you can switch between them it's very hard to do that in real estate and clearly that then requires puts the onus more for research on the individual investor rather than them kind of outsourcing it to a fund manager who makes those decisions so i guess with greater control comes greater responsibility and, and research and time commitment for doing that the same as as with individual stock picking yeah well i think you've made the really important point laura there at the end it's just the same as with the rest of the market i, I always think i always like to use the example you know if you look at silicon valley you can either buy a nasdaq tracker and you, know, you, you just get get the market performance or if you wanted to take a slightly more focused approach you could choose between things like Scottish Mortgage or or Polar Capital, they have more or less exposure to certain of the FANG stocks. Or, or if you really wanted to, you can you can buy shares in Apple or Tesla. In real estate, to date, you've been able to do the first two of those. You, you could buy a sort of you know, a, a generalist open-ended fund that's just a balanced UK return, get a bit of everything. Or you could, for example, buy something like Great Portland Estates, which is a very focused on London offices and development assets, but still relying on the management team to allocate your capital. But you haven't been able to pick individual assets, and, and that's what the that's what the market needs now. So for those who do want to do that research, who do want to um, really go down to the granular level of choosing which buildings they want to own, uh, it should be available. Uh, but to those that don't want to, there, there are still collective schemes um, uh, that, that exist that can, can allow you, as you say, to outsource the choice to, to professionals. Um, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So Laura talking to Roger Clark from Property Stock Exchange, IPSX. Now, how have you been coping with the hot weather, Dan? I, I don't think I've slept for two nights. Yeah, it wasn't. It was, uh, you know, quite um, quite unpleasant. But equally, as soon as the, the, the sort of the temperature dropped, you kind of miss it a bit. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess you know, people in the UK are just not quite used to those sort of levels of temperature. But um, you know, perhaps this is what what we're going to be seeing from now on with climate change. But I think uh, you know, as well as the discomfort, um, it it's all absolutely going to have impacted the economy because not only did we have some schools closed but people were told not to travel and that disruption has continued in today you know I mean we had um, runways melting we had train lines needing to be repaired and and the images of the huge fires across London um, were just you know quite incredible so 
all of this is going to impact productivity over the last few days. And you've also got a situation where there were a lot of unions talking about whether or not if this kind of high temperature is going to continue, if there needed to sort of be a maximum temperature which you could work at. Because I know there were a couple of um, restaurants near me that were closed because, you know, if you can imagine working in a kitchen in 40 degree heat, I mean, that must be absolutely miserable. No, absolutely. I mean, I guess there's always a comeback, isn't there? Employers, uh, um, perhaps in, in offices, can say, well, we're offering you air conditioning, get a better cooler experience than working from home. But um, yeah, I, I don't think we're quite at that stage where you're going to see sort of laws like that or um, equally, you know, will will sort of people say, well, we need air conditioning across the board. Um, but, you know, if, if we see may, maybe, you know, another two years of that sort of repeats the situation, then you might sort of have those more serious conversations. But that's just my opinion. And certainly there's been discussions today about the need to update infrastructure. And if if people are spending money on infrastructure going forward, either to, to update or, or to add new, then this is something which does need factoring in to make sure that, you know, not only can our train lines cope with, you know, the wrong leaves on the line or, or snow or rain or whatever, but they can also cope with, with 40 degree heat. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, there's always something that will disrupt life, I guess. So, Well, that is all for this week's podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura Souter, and we'll also hear from Schroders about putting the S in ESG. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.